Donald Antrim writes for the New Yorker magazine and is most recently the author of uh, The Afterlife, a memoir uh, primarily about your relationship with your mother. And uh, uh, Apropos of that, you delivered a workshop at the Blue Met Literary Festival in Montreal entitled Writing Ourselves, What We Can Learn From Ourselves, About Ourselves, From and About Our Own Writing. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Again, perhaps you could share, first of all, what the objectives were, what your thoughts about the whole topic are, what you found. I think I had the, I had the, the idea, because of my own experience of writing a memoir, I'd eventually come to realize that I was in effect writing a kind of a, really was writing a kind of an autobiographical novel uh, with none of the names changed to some degree. And it seemed to me that one of the, the, one of the uses of the workshop could be to read stories or to read uh, essays or read, read whatever you're reading to see not so much how to fix this or that problem or how to solve a, a, a some particular issue necessarily, though that might be what we would do in class with a, with a, with a, with a story, but also to, to look into the stories to see what the writer is telling himself or herself in what's being written, mm -hmm. uh, what is not being seen, what can be revealed from content and from tonality and from uh, withheld or repressed content. Uh, which might be important uh, to the writer to uh, to look into or to take responsibility for in some way or to ask uh, 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 further questions about as a way of pushing uh, the story into a maybe a, into a more evolved state, but also uh, as a way to think about the story as part of an ongoing uh, sort of continuum, mm -hmm. uh, an ongoing process uh, that the writer is engaged in throughout life. Um, from a narrative of their own lives. Yeah, but and also to say to, to see well, what is it that I'm saying? What is it I'm doing? What is it I'm telling myself in what I wrote? A, a, a way of thinking practically about what can be done in a workshop mm -hmm. if one is not content to say, well, I like this, or I, you know, I this didn't work for me, or, or but, but to begin to say uh, to go beyond that and 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 to ask what it is that the story is revealing that that could be understood to be part of of the basic concern of the writer in an ongoing condition. In, the, in other words, the things we come back to again and again that mm -hmm. we don't necessarily see because even though we're saying them or writing them, they may be out of awareness to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I think that that's something that I always want to try to get to or get at. I sounds, I, sounds almost a, a, like a therapeutic process, though, for what these writers are doing. Yeah, I don't really want to, I, I don't want to get conf too confused no. about that. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really feel confident about going into stories and diagnosing them. But to some degree, th there needs to be some way to look into something and to notice patterns, to notice repeated concerns or obsessions or, or whatever, and to make something out of that, to be able to say, well, okay, when we say, where do we go from here, it can be part of how we know where to go from here. It, it can sound like it has a therapeutic side to it, but I don't really mean it that way. I really mean it in relation to the story itself and how the writer reads himself or herself as time goes on. And, and really try to bring writers of memoir and writers of fiction into the same room and, and just see what happens. And I'm, only because I've done both and because I've learned about the novel from writing the memoir and I've learned about memoir from writing the novel. And Specifically what? The memoir, as I think about it, it's not really the same thing as the autobiography. It's not necessarily exhaustive or encyclopedic. It's not necessarily the life story from the beginning to the middle, to the end, with all the major events and all of the important keynotes and all of the important stages of life represented and, and described and all the people one knew coming on. So it's 
The memoir is a piece of something, and it's a piece of an experience. Uh, a shard. Yeah, I mean, it's defined as much by the form that it takes as it is by the content. If we imagine the exhaustive of the encyclopedic autobiography as a certain kind of book or a certain kind of endeavor. Chronologically, too. Chronologically, yeah, and an account of a life written late in life and that sort of thing. Mm. The memoir is not that, necessarily, and, and, and need not be that, and need not be exhaustive, and can be very, very specific in its concerns. It's drawn from a life and is therefore surrounded by that life and surrounded by all the pressures mm-hmm. and the tension and the, and the, and the experience of, a, of an entire life. So in extracting and in choosing and in arranging and in moving about through time and so on, all these things that are possible in, in, in the memoir, the, the, the form becomes, in some way, I think, related to the novel. I mean, we're writing mm. essentially the novel of our own lives. Yeah, where you could focus on themes that, for, for, that were particularly important to you versus, again, feeling obliged to to cover right to cover all the ground to cover all the bases yeah. to to get all the years in and all the different schools you went to and all the different yeah. jobs you had and all the different conquests you made and that kind of thing so as opposed to the diary or the the, the you know the extended journal or commonplace uh, book right yeah. right the major autobiography the memoir you know and, and specifically specifically I think that that I felt when I was writing memoir that I was I was I was very concerned with the kind of moral and ethical pressure that I felt in dealing with real people, living and dead, and uh, and I was concerned with with the uh, impact, as it were, of, of of choosing and selecting and and, and, and and arranging the story that I was telling mm-hmm. as narrative, because often I was arranging and making narrative that didn't really didn't really play out exactly as it had in life. Nothing was being made up. Nothing was being misrepresented. Nothing was being sort of invented consciously, or, or and yet in manipulating and in making form and in making shape mm-hmm. and in making certain kinds of connections and omitting others, I, I, I was aware that I was uh, changing the life that I was writing about. The, the afterlife is fairly difficult material. It's in one way, it's the story of my relationship with my mother and hers with me. But it's not the whole story of everything we ever did or said, and it's also uh, the story of her very difficult, troubled life as a an alcoholic who died very unhappily. And so, when the book came out, and when I first began to talk about it, sometimes people would say, "How do you feel having all that out? Do you mind people knowing about how, you know your your life in this way?" And I would think I've really gone out of my way to make this something that isn't only the story of my life, but which is a story that you, as a reader, will uh, take on an experience in some way that I maybe don't fully control. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm writing a narrative and I'm writing a story, and, and, and so in, in that way, it's, it's the story of my mother and me and our family, and it's also not that story. It's also mm-hmm. not us. The memoir makes this, this experience for a reader possible in the way uh, that a novel does, and in a way that maybe the memoirs of a major politician, for instance, mm-hmm. or the autobiography of a, of a statesman, it's not that experience. It so leaves room for uh, emotional participation? For emotional participation, for interpretation. So I, I eventually began to feel that I made this, exposed myself and my mother and told the story, but I also hadn't exposed mm-hmm. myself at all in some mm-hmm. way. And that the protection that I had from that was 
contained not so much in content that I either withheld or included, but in the construction of form. And so the idea behind bringing these people together in a classroom would be to look at, at what happens to our, our work as we make form and what, 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 what form is and what the novel is and where the memoir uh, exists in relation to the novel. Like I said, I'm not a, a huge workshop gunner mm -hmm. at this point, but one of the things that happens is that you know, stories come in and one thing the writer may want to know right away is, is this good? Mm -hmm. Is it working? What does that mean to work? What can be done to help it? What can be done to fix it? And so some of the comments that will happen around the table will be like, well, I, li I like this part, but I didn't understand that part. So what are you going to do? Just more clarification. Yeah. yeah. What do you do to make this story or this piece of writing uh, exist in a more sort of satisfying and fulfilled way? Okay. Satisfying in the sense that it's saying what the writer wants to say and and is easily comprehended by the reader. Uh, it's easy for the reader to get involved with it. Exactly, to get involved with it, to, be, to, to, to have the experience in reading as opposed to, say, trying to figure out the story and what, what's going on here. When I, when I first read the topic of your workshop, and I'm speaking with Donald Antrim, whose most recent memoir is Afterlife, was self-deception. This came to me recently. I, I was sharing a memory with uh, with my brother. The two of us had dined together uh, maybe four or five years ago, mm -hmm. and I swore that what happened at that dinner was that he had found a piece of glass in his ice cream and had called over the waitress and asked to see the manager. The manager didn't show up. The poor waitress had to take the heat. Anyway, he was adamant that that didn't happen there, but that he had told me of that story mm -hmm. at that restaurant. You, you talk here about writing ourselves <laughs> and, right. and learning from ourselves and about ourselves, and I'm suggesting maybe that we're deceiving ourselves. Be it as it may. <laughs> there are many kinds of self-deception, and maybe I could get out another sort, which may be more in relation to what, I'm, what, what I mean by, by seeing ourselves and what we're writing. Not just to see ourselves, but to see our writing and what we're writing, to see what we're writing and to see how to manipulate and take responsibility for and when I began writing the, the, the memoir, The Afterlife, which I never really wanted to write, and I never thought I'd write a memoir, and I, I was very much against the idea, but after my mother died, I found that I began writing not about her, but about my grandfather. I wrote a little piece for The New Yorker, at, at a thousand words, 1,200 words or something like that. But it really wound up being about my mother. And this was very soon after she died in 2000, and... Well, by the next year or so, I've come around and I've begun to write the beginning of this, what, what would become a book, but which I had no intention of writing as a book. And mm. Sort of brought itself to your attention. Yeah, my, my attitude about my mother had remained throughout many of the, throughout most of my adult life, very defended, very, I was very sarcastic about her. I was very, uh, uh, it was very difficult to, uh, to know how to deal with this, this character, uh, this difficult and, and so a lot of the difficult and, and more painful stories of, of, of my life with her I've been able to convert into sort of comic yarns mm. in the way we do, you know, and, 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 and I, could, I could make kind of a funny story out of, out of, my, out of my sad life with my mother. I began to write this, that was the spirit that I still had. I was still a bit jagged, protected, and defended against her in the story that I was trying to write about her. Looking back now, I can see in the opening of the book kind of an angry, 
screwed up narrator. He's going through his own breakdown and his own crisis after the death of his mother. I published that in 2001. I think it was it, it ran in the, in, the, in the New Yorker. And I promised myself immediately that I would never do this again. It had been a horrible experience. I had to pretend to myself that I would never show it to anyone as I wrote it, knowing all along that I would finally because I was writing it and how I made my living, et cetera, et cetera. And I just didn't want to be in this position at all. And I really just wanted to hide under the bed. I had that reaction. Uh, I felt exposed. I felt like I'd done something wrong. I felt like I'd broken a taboo. I felt like I was really writing into prohibition. I didn't like it one bit. But sure enough, within four or five months, I was back at it. And I began to write about my certain other family members, uh, <laughs> you know, in relation to my mother, and in relation, you know, and building this thing. And eventually it became apparent that I was, was going to do this, and I was going to write this thing, I was going to see this thing through. It took years to do, in part because I kept running away from it, and I had to retreat from it all the time. Actually writing it was not a bad experience. Getting up from the table and being the person writing it was a dreadful experience. Mm. But I felt a tremendous amount of remorse over what I was doing. I felt a great deal of fear in what I was doing, and I was very anxious the whole time. But over these years, and over the time of writing it, I did begin to notice that my attitude about her and my feelings about her were shifting. Because in order to make this book happen, in order to really write this book, I had to think about her, and I had to write about her, and I had to remember her, and I had to remember, I had to think about her work. She had been a, a tailor and a, 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 and a costume historian and textile chemist and in late in life, uh, she was a, a, a really a first-class tailor and seamstress, as well as a professor of, of, uh, of costume history. So at the end of her life, when she was really very alone in the world and, and, and very isolated in some ways, she began to make garments that were, I thought at the time, cra kind of crazy. I mean, they, they, were, they were very or ornamented, ornate. She lived in the Smoky Mountains at that point, and first in Miami, Florida, and then in the Smoky Mountains, near where her parents had, had, had lived and then finally died. And, and, and she made these garments that were uh, highly decorated and eventually decorated with applied symbols uh, that were meaningful to her and her life and had spiritual significance. And you really couldn't wear these things out in public, you know, unless you wanted that kind of attention, you know. They, mm. were, they were very difficult to look at as her child. They would become part of my comic narrative about my mother, you yeah. know, because, you know, they were, they were nutty. Or they were too colorful and too bold and, and full of shapes and ge geometric patterns and, you know, sort of art to wear, but, but, but that you didn't really want to wear. Well, when I finally started to write about these things, I had to look at them closely, and so the, the sort of crowning achievement of that of that sort of body of work that she did in late in life and which she thought of as her art and not as clothing that she yeah. was making. You know, I finally got this kimono that I got it, my sister had it and, and, and had taken it and kept it in the family. Nobody really wanted to look at it. Nobody know what, knew what to, how to deal with it because it was our mother and we were her children and so we were therefore naturally mortified. I remember this thing coming in the post and, and I couldn't even take it to my apartment. I left it at the offices of the New Yorker for over a year. I looked at it there, but when I opened it up and looked at it, the first thing I understood about it was that it was made so beautifully. And the work in it, the, the, the sewing, the handwork, mm. the, it, it wasn't tailored in the sense that it wasn't structured like a man's suit, but it was nonetheless tailored. 
And so I was confronted with the fact that my mother was really very good at what she yeah. did. So this is sort of a transformation in your way of looking yeah, at Yeah, so, so I, I began to understand then that in her loneliness and in her despair and in her isolation, she had nonetheless continued to work. Mm -hmm. And in her ambivalence over what she made and over what she was able to do and the reception of the garments she made, perfection of her art. Yeah, and, and it wasn't an art that I that I was able to understand as being an art in any way because she was my mother and because... Yeah, because it was because embarrassing. It, so it was embarrassing. So for yeah. me, these things were embarrassing. Now, years later, writing this, they weren't embarrassing anymore. They were a testament to, to, to her survival and to her survival as a, as a person with dignity and with ambition. Artistic and, integrity. And, and with integrity. Mm. Had I not been writing this memoir over years and years and years, I wouldn't have had the occasion to think this way or to have this shift in feeling. Now that begins to inform the writing itself. Now the writing is shifting. Now the writing is softer. Now, mm -hmm. you know, now the book is becoming less jagged in some ways. So as I move through time through the narrative now that I wrote, I can see that the author is being changed in the act of writing the book. But you know what's easy though is, is, is because she's dead, the irritating, embarrassing fire that was there you don't any longer have that's to true face so that so little by little that's diminishing and it's replaced by sadness and it's replaced by loss and of course you don't have the problem of having to go fight with her anymore yeah. or being invaded by uh, by her need anymore mm -hmm. or being mortified by her position in the world anymore mm -hmm. nonetheless for me while my feelings about her and about our relationship may may have mellowed at any rate over time I also might not have ever understood the, the central importance of work to her mm -hmm. and of the dignity in that. And that was a crucial shift that mm -hmm. enabled me to see that as her son, I was necessarily mortified, but later, as, as her son looking into who she really was and finding, I, I had to understand that part of my mortification, m most of my mortification, was my defense against her, was my sarcasm, mm -hmm. it was my anger. Mm -hmm. Now there's, it's uh, transformed into a kind of pride. It's transformed now into something like a kind of release as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think about her as much as I used to. I don't think about her in the same ways. I feel much more comfortable with her not here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, what, what I mean by that is that I feel I was, it, it, it enabled, it, you know, as part of the ritual of accepting her as who she had been, as yes. having had. A, a very troubled and, and difficult life, mm -hmm. having made life very difficult for the people around her throughout her life, I, I now feel about her that she had a life and that I'm part of that. A life part of, of her meaning. Yeah, and a, and a meaning that she could not always communicate, but which nonetheless she endeavored to communicate throughout her life, and she never gave that up. And that's a dignified perspective on a dignified existence. So through writing this, and through seeking form and through seeking the stories that I could tell, I might as well have been writing the novel because mm -hmm. what was happening was that the course of writing was inventing the author as a new version of himself writing this book about something that he thought he remembered and did remember but didn't fully remember and didn't understand in all the ways that, that could come through the writing. Mm -hmm. So that's something to get at if, if in, in talking in a workshop or in talking to other talking to students or talking to writers. That's something to talk about in relation to what we're trying to get and what we're trying to do when we write these things and when we sit down to write. What is it that we're trying to experience? What is it that we're trying to have? And the answer isn't therapy because finally 
it, it may have been a therapeutic experience in a very long-term mm -hmm. sense, but really the, 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 the point is not to have therapy through this. The point is to, is to get closer to an art form, which is to say to get closer to writing a story or, a, or an essay or, or a book-length memoir that is, that is getting closer to the art form that is also derived from the novel and from the short story. And, and from that, and from that tradition, uh, you know, going back to the 18th century. One of the signs of a great novel is that it does change the reader. Mm. So what you're suggesting is that by writing a memoir, it changes the writer. It can change the writer, and, and, and as such, mm -hmm. if it does that, it seems to me then it would succeed in also changing the reader. Yeah, possibly changing the reader, but also just possibly even just giving the reader the occasion for an experience in the reading. Almost then, if you can feel the change in the writing, then you know that you've succeeded as a writer of that form. Is yeah, there a way of judging the success of your work? I can only speak for myself, and I would say that for me, that would only be a component of a kind of success. Mm -hmm. And that would be a component that would be related to perspective and feeling. As feeling. opposed to technique. Yeah, I was going to say conveying, yeah, conveying uh, perspective and feeling is, is, is a technical business. Mm -hmm. And so the success finally of the finish or, you know, the, of the written work is as much a technical problem uh, as, as it is a, as a, a problem of, of the feeling state of an author, I think. I mean, yes, but again, I mean, what you're simply using is syntax and diction mm -hmm. and you're just choosing the right words. Well, you're choosing the right words, but you're also you're also making transitions. You're, you know, you're leaving out that year and writing later comma. I had the form for this memoir sort of given to me. I was very very lucky because, having written the first couple of pieces for it for the New Yorker, I then proposed that I would continue, and we mm -hmm. and we did that. And Just wrote, to the publisher. Yeah, I published the first, I don't know, two thirds of the memoir as pieces in the New Yorker. Yeah. So there's the form, a seven to eight to nine thousand word piece, a group of those, seven of those, which have to lock together while standing freely. So now I have this form I'm working in. How do I do this? What is that? So that's one form, as, and there's all sorts of different forms. Sure, you sure. That was how I came about yeah. doing what I did. I, when I say I was lucky to have that, what I mean is that is that is that I might have spent years just fumbling and scrambling about and trying to figure out where to begin and mm -hmm. where to end, mm -hmm. as it was, because I had this conceit, which is that the thing would be made of these standalone pieces that nonetheless lock together, mm -hmm. uh, structurally, psychologically, emotionally, through time. But really the pieces go backward and forward in time, and there's a lot of movement here and there, and things that happen in one beginning of the book recur later in a different context later in the book. So there's a lot of this sort of sense that what these forms, what these separate pieces represented were, were really kind of like Venn diagrams. I mean, uh, sort of interlocking and overlapping sets where a piece of something is connected to another piece of something and that piece of something is connected to another piece. Mm -hmm. Collage. Yeah, and so, but, but, but a collage of, 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 of parallel and perpendicular narratives. Yeah, almost like a, a panoramic view then with, with uh, as you say, different photographs. Pieces here, pieces there, but somehow or another coming together to make a picture, okay. and that pic picture is, is subjectively produced mm -hmm. and, and made technically, you know, through, through choice and selection and, 
and, and, and, and tone and, 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 and speed and psychological drive. So the choices of form affect affect it, yeah, affect what the story is. Mm -hmm. So I could say I wrote a memoir and it's the story of my mother and so on and so forth. But I, I've heard people talk about the book to me and people say things to me about the book that I would never have imagined. I can't mm -hmm. remember right offhand, but yeah. I mean, I, but I, but I just know that I just know that that, that for a reader, it, it, it might be something very very different from what I anticipated mm -hmm. in making form and in making something that's trying to get closer to to form in, in that way. Uh, I'm not defining form very well. I'm not doing that at all, but it's meaningful to me anyway. I'm making up the story of me and my mother <laughs> out of yeah. this out of what actually happened. That makes sense. Well, what I'm thinking of when you say this is, uh, is it's like a poem. There's all sorts of different types of poems. Mm -hmm. There's also a powerful wish to convey emotion, and you can just sort of splatter your emotion on the page with a bunch of words, or you can work two specific types of alexandrines or or sonnets or whatever it might right. be. If you're able to put the get together the emotion and the and the particular genre in a way that doesn't interfere with either. Right. Then, then you've done something. Is that would that be yeah. accurate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that I, I, we can't neglect form as having history, having tradition, having precedent, and mm -hmm. having having its own uh, contribution to emotion and to meaning. And so it affects the way you think too. Affects the way, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just uh, in closing, uh, I'm also reminded of James Joyce, who talked about epiphany. And that that epiphany or understanding or awakening occurring in the actual process of writing, you you don't really think about something until or appreciate the idea until you've you've actually written it down and it's in that it's in that actual process of writing. You mean the epiphany for the writer as opposed yes. to the epiphany in the story. The epiphany for the the writer exactly. Yeah, yeah. That you come up with a new idea in the writing. I don't usually use the word, and I think that, that simply because for me it's a, you know it's contaminated a little bit by that idea that the story has to lead to an epiphany, mm. and that the epiphany uh, that a character experiences is the goal of the story. Mm. And I, I, I'm not really so sure about that. But, but, I, but, but don't I you want that? I mean, about. as a writer, you want you want to have new insight into. into oh, absolutely, things. sure, sure. So and you, so that's what you're, you know, in a way, you know, when you're writing writing ourselves. That's the whole idea, is to, is to come up with something that's, that you didn't realize before and that awakens you to yes. a new way of and it living. Is a, yeah, it's a kind of epiphany that's possible. These two days of doing this, I don't think the word epiphany ever came up, mm. but it is an appropriate word, mm. sure. Yeah. I mean, you're asking yourself to see and feel something that is, has always been there. Yeah, like your, your epiphany with your mother, she actually was a devoted artist who was seeking meaning through the integrity with which she approached her work. Mm -hmm. The epiphany in relation to her sewing was my epiphany. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your different way of looking at her. Yeah, so, so it was a way for me to also understand that while these garments she had made may have been embarrassingly plastered with sort of fuzzy objects and uh, furry animals that she made and cut out and that were sort of spirit familiars and cats and birds and so forth, but also little shapes. And while she may have been doing all that and making this kind of over-decorated surface, she mm -hmm. was doing it with such skill and dexterity and such there was such beautiful work that went into making that. That seemed to contain, for me, uh, the dignity in what she was doing, the dignity that I couldn't see when she was alive because
because I couldn't get near enough to looking at these things mm-hmm. because they repelled me because of their imagery and because of the childlike quality of the image, the narcissism in the imagery. And yet, then when I look into the the structure and the and the, and the technique involved, I, I have to rethink her and I have to rethink her life and I have to rethink her her last years, and and then I have to rethink my own feelings about who I thought she'd been and who I thought she was. I have to rethink my own anger and my own bitterness toward her. Mm-hmm. And I have to understand that nothing is ever as simple as we think and that our relationships uh, change uh, even after the people with whom we have them are no longer here. Just finally, uh, I, I, I love the parallel between just being a seamstress and, and, and being a wordsmith and the necessity of, of being a good craft person that exists prior to adding all of the different larger concepts. I assume that you you are getting something from this workshop. Mm-hmm. Why should someone take your workshop? There are two questions here. Why would I do it? But also, why would why would somebody come? Why would somebody come? Because we live in a workshop world now. A lot of people don't have very good things to say about workshops. It, it's become part of the bureaucracy of becoming a writer. Mm-hmm. Well, it's and a part of a way for writers to make a living. Yeah, and it's a way for writers to, to have jobs. I think that the workshop can be a uh, you know, in the wrong hands, and I think it would be a fairly destructive experience. But I also think that it can be a fairly productive experience. I've been doing this for a long time, and doing it outside of universities, and doing it outside of academic faculties, and I'm 50 years old now. It seemed to me that maybe I had come to some place where I did have something to share. Whatever I have to share is, is to some degree, or whatever I have to offer, to some degree is going to be related to the story at hand. It's going to be related to what's in that story okay. that I can that I can talk about and I can make sense of and that I can talk about in some way that may mean something to the writer. You know, one of the things that we can do in a workshop is we can maybe we can shave some time off of the sort of muddle uh, of figuring out uh, you know what's going on. Maybe we can say there are things you don't need to do here. Maybe maybe it's an occasion. To say to a writer, this is very ornamented. I mean, you know, maybe you need to build the world a, a little more concretely here. This mm-hmm. is very, becoming very abstract. I'm having a hard time seeing this. Maybe you know, there, there are technical issues that can be brought up. So there's all kinds of things that can happen in a workshop that I think can be extremely valuable. You know, uh, when, when you were just saying that, what comes to mind is one of the things in our lives that we, that the best things that we can do is to find out uh, what it is that we are truly passionate about, mm-hmm. and perhaps that's what your workshop uh, might do is to, is to show the writer, listen, I can tell that there's juice here, there's, there's passion here, there's the, the, this corner of your dark mind is, right. is one that's, that's really going to, to uh, reap some benefits if you, if you go there instead of over here and here and here. Right. There's all kinds of, of utility that's possible. There's all kinds of destruction that's possible. There's all kinds of compromise that's possible. There's all kinds of censorship that's possible in the workshop. So, you know, it's finding a balance. I'm not interested in dissuading anyone from writing. I'm not interested in promoting anyone's writing. I'm interested in the experience of being in the class and trying to get at stories and get at what's in them and, and find out a way to talk to a writer that makes sense, that cuts the isolation a little bit, that gives the other writers in the room a community, of, if even, even if only temporarily, of people who can read them and talk to them and think about what they're doing. So it's, it's quite clear that the institutionalization 
of the workshop, which has come to be understood as almost a sort of a necessary and essential part of a writer's apprenticeship, I'm not sure that that's a great thing. I'm really not. I'm not sure that, that we have uh, a system in North America, or, or at least mainly in America, uh, in the United States, of, of, of writers going to graduate schools. Writers going to graduate schools and never leaving them. So yeah. Sometimes writers going straight to graduate schools after college and then becoming faculty somewhere else right after that. Yeah, and, and they need to go out and live. I, I don't want to recommend that anybody do any specific thing. I mean, I never was in the Merchant Marine. I'm not going to tell people to go be in the Merchant Marine. Mm -hmm. uh, don't be a writer without it. You know, I, I, I sat in a room for 20 years trying to figure this stuff out. And some people travel the world and, yeah. and, and do that. But I, I'm just not sure that, I'm not sure that you can say in a general way that having workshops all the time and going from workshop to workshop and then teaching them is, is necessarily the greatest thing for, for literature. That said, the workshop itself as an individual experience or as a, as a unique experience, I think can be can be very productive and very very helpful and very and very and a very positive experience for a writer. So we can't slam the whole thing and and throw it out. It's here. So what what can we do to make use of it in some way uh, that's that's actually productive? And that's what I'm sort of trying to think about. Also, it's been a way for me to come back to all this after a long period of time in which I had a very difficult time with myself as a writer because of the remorse I felt immediately upon finishing the afterlife in that memoir. So it's a way for me to, to try to sort of give at the office a little bit, <laughs> you know, and, and make a gesture, respond to my own experiences, remember what I need to remember about uh, what I am as a writer. So not entirely an altruistic gesture. And, and then finally, I would say that uh, once a week, say, in New York, I have this thing to go and be with a group of people for three hours and talk and be in a room with people who are smart, who are and, smart like and excited about what they're trying to do and what they're doing. And it's social. It's, it's a community. It, it feels good to be there. Uh, I, I realized after I started to do it that I really looked forward to it, and I, and I really liked the students, and I liked the people I was working with. I thought, oh, this is great. Yeah. yeah so and so, someone who wants to, you know, take your workshop would would do so for exactly what the reasons you just outlined for yourself. Yeah, I hope workshop's just a workshop. You know, finally, you, you know, writer has to go home and sit in a room for twenty years. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much for your time, and thank you. uh, we look forward to hearing about how this uh, workshop evolves over the years. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. I've been speaking with Donald Antrim, who is a writer for The New Yorker, and most recently the author of a memoir, The Afterlife. <laughs>